Tonight's episode is brought to you by your local search and rescue team, survivalfeeling.com, and you, our listeners. Do you remember Whack-A-Mole? Imagine playing a like live-action Whack-A-Mole, but the thing that you're trying to whack, it, it, it's in a thousands of square acres possible area. What is up, all of you wayward souls, and welcome back to Wayward Stories. I am your host, Justin, aka The Wayward Son. I hope y'all all are well this week. I am recording this episode on Memorial Day, so I hope that you all had a safe and happy and fun Memorial Day weekend. Um, I'm recording a little early this week because, honestly, I had to work today. My Memorial Day weekend was kind of a train wreck. It wasn't fun this year. Um, But it got done early, and this looks like it may be the big window of opportunity for me to do some recording this week, so we're going to go ahead and do it now. Tonight's housekeeping is going to be short and sweet. Um, Got our first review on Apple Podcast, so I want to shout out um, Tywisa. Now, that may be an acronym or that may be your name. Don't know for sure, but it was a five-star review, and it was a fair review in my opinion, and I am super appreciative of it. Just want to let you guys know, we need all those reviews and five-star ratings we can get. Those will help us to climb and our listenership to grow, which is what we really, really need. So get out there, rate, review, and subscribe, and I will likely shout you out just to add a little sweet in the pot a little bit. Add a little incentive for you to go out there and say some nice things about us. And if you say bad things, I will respect your opinion, though I may not like it. Um, And the other little piece of housekeeping is met up with a a feller on Instagram here recently, and he's got a little thing he calls Solomon Dry Goods. And he sent me a chest rig. Um, He makes handmade. um, It's more or less tactical gear. It's more geared towards tactical. But tonight we're talking about search and rescue. That's tonight's show, and this is a perfect thing for it. Search and Rescue can be quite tactical at times, and it's just an awesome little chest rig. It is handmade, and it is really well built, and I just want to shout him out for sending me that. I'm going to do a review on that and get that on YouTube here in the next week or two as soon as I have time. If you guys want to go check him out, he's just like a one-man, small-time little operation, a passion project just like mine here on Wayward Stories, and I just want to recognize him and give him a shot. Um to be heard and maybe you guys go check him out you can find him on instagram at solomon s-o-l-o-m-o-n dot dry dot goods and i think his facebook page is where he does more stuff which is facebook.com forward slash slash solomon dry goods so y'all give him a give him a check him out and thank you good sir for my awesome chest rig it may very well become one of my key pieces in my um turnout gear, so to speak, for a search mission. Um, Anyway, so let's get on to it. We're going to talk about search and rescue. I mentioned just like two episodes ago that someday in the future, we're going to do a search and rescue episode. And a little peek behind the curtain, the way I kind of picked the next episode. If I didn't have an awesome weekend, the adventure before, um, adventure on the weekend that I want to just throw down right on the spot while it's fresh, I've got like a short list. I've got a long list and a short list of possible... Um, subjects for shows 
And on the short list, usually I'm probably going to pick one of those four or five subjects. And it's really just which one catches my imagination. Like over the few days before I record, as I'm driving around at work for Big Purple, usually one will kind of stick in my in my brain and the episode will start to build itself. So this week, it was Search and Rescue that caught on in my mind. And if I'm inspired, I work a lot quicker and the episodes come out sounding a lot more fluid and less forced. So tonight, we are finally going to do the Search and Rescue episode I've talked about for so many episodes. And to be perfectly transparent, this may end up being a two-parter. As I started writing down the talking points, I realized I've got a lot of them, and I do think it'll be incredibly interesting, um, or at least very interesting to all of you out there, because you you guys are all um, wilderness junkies like myself and suffer from wanderlust, and all of this is beneficial information, things you should know, and it's going to be real easy for me to talk about tonight. So let's get right into it. What is my background in search and rescue? Long story, um, medium length, five, six years ago. Um, I started getting very interested in trying to give back and I had certain proclivities, things that I loved and cared about like the wilderness and um, preparedness and things like that that were already kind of in my wheelhouse and I realized I wanted to go and spot storms. I've always loved storms. Didn't want to be a storm chaser. Don't get that mixed up. I wanted to spot storms for the National Weather Service. Um, and to do that most effectively, you need a ham, radios, ham radio license. You don't have to have one, but it is the best, most efficient way to do it. And who doesn't love to learn about some radio communications? They're so useful in so many ways. Um, so I went about getting my ham radio license, and I got my amateur, general, and my extra class in three months, in three straight testing periods, which is not a common occurrence. I'm pretty proud of that, to be honest with you. You only need the first level, though, and it's easy enough to get if you ever get interested. And was assigned the call sign KG5SQV, Kilo Golf 5, Sierra Quebec Victor, and the frequency is clear. Um, and that gave way to a CERT class, a local CERT class. A CERT class is like preparing the community, just basic citizens in the community. Usually we get a lot of hospitals, nursing home staff, things like that, who show up and they teach you basic disaster medical, head-to-toe checks, things like that. And you'll also get a little bit of light search and rescue. And anyway, I kind of fell in love with the idea of search and rescue at that CERT class that I took that I had to, had to have to get involved in the emergency communication side of ham radio. And anyway, I looked into it, found somebody to ask, joined our local search and rescue team. And here, five years later, I am, well... I've been there five years. I am a team lead. I am planning and operations. Um, the list of trainings I have at this point is extensive. Um, L1 rope rescue responder. That is a technical rope rescue certification. That is, we're going to talk about that more later, actually. Um, planning and operations. That's the stuff where you set and you look at maps and you figure out search radiuses based on lost person behavior and percentages and last known position and all of those kinds of things. Um, in communications, obviously, which to me, I just love comms. Comms is a lot of fun. If you know the right angle to get in it from and disaster comms is a lot of fun because you get into building your own antennas and 
propagation and all kinds of really cool stuff. Um, extensively trained in land navigation, which I already had a ton of experience in, but got proper training in land nav. Um, disaster medical, like disaster first aid, stop the bleed, CPR, AED, head to toe checks, check if there's any internal, you know, like hemorrhaging of, of organs, broken bones, you know, those kinds of things. Um, and also repelling. And I think maybe, oh, and man tracking. That one's a lot of fun. I got some training. We're going to talk about that towards the end of the episode, or if this does become two parts, we're going to talk about that in the second episode. Um, that's a lot of fun. But I think by far the most kitschy, um, quirky certification, quote unquote, that I have is um, downed helicopter extraction. Basically accessing a like an air evac helicopter sometimes those have accidents they kind of get into some tight places and basically trained in how to access victims inside of a downed helicopter should something ever happen to happen on a scene and that was a very interesting little class like here's the oxygen hoses don't cut through these panels don't do this turn off these red switches and this dash panel position etc etc that's probably the um, most quirky training of all the ones that I have. And, um, I got a lot of training, but that don't make that, don't let that sound like I don't have anything else to do with my life, but go to search and rescue trainings. I've missed far more trainings in the last five years because of work or having my daughter than I've made. This list was hard fought for. I assure you. Um, so I've got a pretty good background. I've got a few searches under my belt. I have several trainings and those are probably going to get talked about it. Like again, the very end of the episode or in part two, if we go as long as we need to, to go to a part two. Um, so what is search and rescue actually, what do we actually do? There are a ton of misconceptions out there. Um, and, and, and stereotypes and not all of them are unfair. They're just outdated. Search and rescues come a long way in the last 20 years, y'all. There was 20 to 30 years ago, there were some major, like nation, nationwide, even international news stories that some of the older generation may remember. Any of you young cats, you won't even know. You'll have no idea. But it did get a bit of a bad reputation at different times because of the way certain searches were handled that became like international news. And as we're all well aware of today with clickbait and... God, how do you say this without it going immediately political? But there is a lot of fake news out there, and I'm not on one side of the political aisle of the other. There's just a lot of crap people put out there to try to change your mind. Well, that was true back then, too. And, you know, people get up in arms, and they get a bee in their bonnet about certain things. And then misinformation can be spread, and certain things can be not fully understood as to why certain decisions were made. So it's not a completely unfair stereotype. It's just an outdated stereotype. We are, in the 2020s, a much more technically-minded, data-driven group of people. I was about to say organization, but search and rescue is in so many places across so many lands. It's not just like a single organization, but as a group of people, as a group of first responders, we work off of data these days. We use every available resource we can and we do everything 
by case studies from the past. We learn. We do tons of continuing education. We have tons of certifications that are required to search outside of your county, outside of your state, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's become much more. It is far more than your granddaddy's search where the whole town turned out and everybody just walked and yelled. And there's so many more far more effective ways to find a missing person than that. And we're going to talk about that a little bit. And I guess we're going to talk about it right now. This is the spot to do it. One way to start this off, I guess, would be talk about that specifically. The old way of doing things, everybody shows up. It's down to the county sheriffs. Um, and local law enforcement, most likely, are the ones running the show. And back in the day, we didn't understand a lot of things about forensics, about um this could be a crime scene. This could be, this could be the last known position we have of them. And we would go out, everybody, the town included, and first responders, local law enforcement, everyone involved, go out and trample the last known position or the point last seen. It can be one or the other. Completely destroy any evidence whatsoever that could point us in the right direction. And then we would just go walk in the woods and people would yell and shine flashlights and blow whistles and that kind of thing. That's that's the old way. That's how search and rescue used to be done. But then people started to discover there's a smarter way to approach this. And they started doing case studies of lost persons and and putting together. I mean, these are like there are like thesis papers on this. And you start running data and you start running numbers and you start putting all of this together and you start to get things. You start to get patterns that emerge. And one of the most useful things, most data driven things that we use in today's day, um, today's world of search and rescue is the idea of lost person behavior. Different groups of lost people have differing behaviors when they're lost. This is a fact. It is backed by numbers, lots and lots of numbers. I'm not going to throw tons of numbers in front of you tonight. I'm going to keep it a little more high level um, to kind of get through this part of things. But good examples are a dementia patient is going to do certain things. They are most likely going to go to somewhere from their earlier life, most likely childhood. It could be in their 20s, something that was very important to them. One of the first things you're going to ask family if you have had a dementia patient wander away is, is there anywhere close by, anyone important's grave? Like, did their husband or wife die 10, 15 years ago? And is that grave nearby? Is the place where they grew up nor, nor, nearby or the place where they homesteaded when they were young and had their own children? You try to find out because y'all, more often than not, that's where they're going to be. They are going to go... Because in most dementia cases, what do you have? People who are losing their short-term memory, but they remember things from way back when. They remember things from childhood. They remember things from their past. They go to where their memories are. They go there. That vast majority of the time, that is the first place you want to send a hasty team. That's the first places you want to go search is that's probably where they are. They also tend to like water. And that is something they have in common with Autism cases will have autism a lot of times. Autistic children will wander away and they'll be lost. That's a very common occurrence. First place you look, baby. First place. Where's the closest water source? They are drawn to it. They're absolutely drawn to it. Always your first go. Hasty team there now. Get to the water as fast as you can. Um, 
Hunters, for example. Okay, like there's actually diagrams. We have diagrams for this stuff, okay? Like a child is going to wander up to two miles from the point last seen. You know, 90% of the cases are going to be within a two-mile radius or a circumference. Um, dementia is something very similar. You get into like hunters because like, I mean, I grew up with hunters. I hunted when I was young. We know how, you know, hunters are very self-sufficient in the, in the wilderness. They know their way around and they don't want to admit a lot of times that they got lost. Nobody likes to be lost. That's embarrassing, but they tend to walk farther than anyone, which is sometimes up to 27 or 28 miles from the last point they were seen. You guys ever play whack-a-mole at Chuck E. Cheese? Like I got daughter before COVID Chuck E. Cheese was still a thing. I had nephews that we always used to go to Chuck E. Cheese. You remember whack-a-mole? A little mole thing. Go for dude, pop his head up out of the hole on like a two by two foot board and you're supposed to hit it in the head. Imagine playing a like live action whack-a-mole. But the thing that you're trying to whack, it, it, it's in a thousands of square acres possible area as opposed to a two by two board. And it's trying to find its own way out and most likely walking in circles doing it. It is hard to hit a moving target. Hunters, they go a long ways. Um, hikers, not so much. They tend to show a little more restraint once they realize they're lost, but they tend to go a little further than anyone else as well because, again, they are wilderness. They're comfortable in the wilderness, and they may have some land nav training. They may feel like, I can find my way out of here. And again, nobody wants to admit they're lost. Um, you get to young children who are not suffering from autism. They will hide. They often think they're going to be in trouble when they get found. So you could actively be within a few feet of a young child and they're hiding under a briar bush or up under like a, a, a blueberry bush or under a shed or under a, a car hood that's on the property somewhere behind a barn. Young kids, once they know, once they get it, that people are looking for them they get terrified that they're going to be in trouble when they're finally found and they will actively avoid you. So there are many different things that go into this. So we study lost person behavior. I have three, two books or three books on my shelf specifically about lost person behavior, case studies in missing persons that have come before. And you can get a better idea. And when you sit down and planning an operations, when it's time to go, somebody's missing you're gathering information as quick as you can from family members. How old are they? How capable are they? How well dressed are they for the current weather and the environment? How well do they know the backcountry? Are they a hunter? Are they a hiker? Are they a child? You're getting all this information. And from the information you take back into incident command, into the trailer, you can sit down and go, these are our number one priorities right now. Let's get hasty teams on the number one priorities and let's start building the bigger plan. That's something else people don't realize. They're like, why is nobody looking for my missing relative, my son or my daughter? And that is a totally fair thing to question that. I mean, I can't guys, I can't imagine as a dad who desperately loves his child. I can't even imagine. And sometimes your mind does. Because you're involved in search and rescue, you hear about certain cases or you, you might get called out on one and you're going, oh, geez, I don't know if I can handle this one. Like, I can't imagine. So we totally understand 
the urgency in you when you want to know why. But for anyone out there, and God forbid you should ever have to go through this, do understand in today's age, it can take a couple of hours to get a search off the ground because you've got to do it right if you want to be successful. It has been proven time and again that doing it wrong, sending a crap load of people out and just walking and talking and yelling, it causes way more harm than good when trying to locate somebody. That is a factual statement. That is a provably factual statement. What we do to move as quickly as possible is get hasty teams on it. What is a hasty team? A hasty team is usually compromised of very physically capable individuals. Usually some of the younger individuals in the group are very capable. We like them to be very well trained in land navigation and clue detection, which is kind of concurrent with man tracking to a certain degree and informed by lost person behavior books. We want a hasty team out there and we will get a hasty team on the ground as fast as we can. And they'll like say it's a trailhead and a missing hiker and they didn't come back at the end of, you know, say they left a plane and they weren't back in time and we've got their car at that trailhead. That team is going to take a map and they're going to move as quickly as they reasonably can down that trail and they're going to hit the major high points. What are the attractions on this trail? We have a waterfall here. We have a waterfall here. The main point on this trail that everyone's shooting for is this giant arch up here, this giant rock arch or this balancing rock. We have a lot of that kind of stuff in the Ozarks. You're going to send a hasty team looking for clues and we don't look for people. Understand that we look for clues. Clues lead you to people. If you look for people, you overlook clues that could take you to the person, like a gum wrapper and they chew winter fresh all the time, or a heavy smoker. A lot of times, hunters or chain smokers, you can follow a trail of cigarette butts to a lost hunter. That has happened before. That has absolutely happened before. We look for clues. So you send out an experienced group of capable searchers as a hasty team to hit the high points as fast as you can. So you are doing something as soon as you possibly can get someone there. But while that's happening, you're coming back and you're setting up all the important things because you don't know. The hasty team might go out and find the hiker with a broken leg at the water source and the search is over. But you can't assume that's what's going to happen. You have to run the search from the jump. Like this could be an extended multi-day search. That happens way more often than you think. So you have to set up. You have to understand what we're doing is we are preparing for if this becomes a multi-day operation, number one, we got to have shifts and searches, but y'all, it's going to get big. We're going to have to have a staging area. We're going to have to have logistics. We're going to have to have food and water for searchers and for family members. We're going to have to have room for any other agencies that may come in to assist. We may have Arkansas Game and Fish or whatever state you're in. You may have Game and Fish. You may have National Guard. You may have Civil Air Patrol. There are a million different agencies that can get involved and bring something to the table. And you got to figure out where to sit incident command. You got to figure out where to put staging. You got to figure out where to set up for logistics. There are so many things. And that's what's happening at the beginning of a search and why it can take a couple of hours to really get going. I mean, your number one priority is absolutely let's set up grids we build a grid we take all that lost person behavior info we put it into a, a big bubble on the map and we figure out our percentages and we come up with the likelihood of where this person is going to be found and we start setting up grid searches with teams when we try to clear them one grid at a time and then you can mark them off the map 
it's it's systematic now. It is driven by numbers and it's systematic now. And it takes a minute to get all those things because any area you go into, it's not like this is a preordained thing that any searches you're going to show up and it's going to be the same exact thing. That's exactly the opposite of what it is. You go out there and the terrain, like we've been pre-planning and we'll talk about that in a minute, but we've been talking about pre-planning an area that just became, we just became aware of that is in our County just barely. And the County that we butt up with on that side doesn't have a search and rescue team. That's our responsibility. And it's gotten popular with OHBers to go down to this cave and this waterfall not a matter of if it's when that's going to happen. Write it down. I mean, you can take, you can build your little football board on when it's going to happen, but it is going to happen. Pre-planning, looking it over my first, I went down and scouted it a few weeks ago. And my initial reaction was, holy crap, this is hard to access. Holy crap. There's nowhere for incident command post. There's nowhere for a trailer within a half hour drive of this because it's a mountain road, like an old forestry road. There's no way to even get trailer up here. Planning and operations is going to be a half hour from the site. How are we going to work this out? Those are the kinds of things that happens with every search, guys. You need to understand that every search is different and has its own challenges. And you never know where you're going to go. You never know where you're going to get called to. So starting a search takes time. But do know if you heaven forbid, ever find yourself in a situation where someone you love is missing and you're getting very frustrated with the agencies involved and how fast you feel like they're mobilizing to actually do something. It's not because they don't care about your person. We care about your person far more than you'll believe. I'm just telling you that we are going at it systematically because that gives your person the highest chance of survival and being found. That's just bar none. That is factual statement that can be proven with numbers. Um, what else do we do though? Like pre-planning. That's one thing we try to do to get a jump on that very issue of not getting deployed fast enough. We have a search team very close to us here in Sebastian County that I respect to no end is Franklin County Search and Rescue. I respect them immensely. They're one of the most professional volunteer teams I've ever come across anywhere. They stay busy. They have the Ozark Highland Trail. They have a ton of waterfalls in their county, and people like to fall off of waterfalls. Welcome to the 2020s, y'all. People like to fall off of waterfalls. I don't get it. They have the Mulberry River, which we've talked about in a previous episode, a Whitewater River. They do a lot of um, you know, rescues and, unfortunately, recoveries in that river. They are good. They are well-trained. And as a matter of fact, one of their main guys... He has trained me in so many things over the last several years, like, and they're so professional at the training, like it's top level, top tier stuff. When you get that certification from them, it means something to people. That dude went through it and got it. That's legit. They do a ton of pre-planning. What is pre-planning? Okay. We got this waterfall over here that everybody's got to get on their Instagram. It is gotta happen. And then they go up there and then they slip on the moss at the top of the waterfall and they fall 50 feet. They bounce twice. They're somehow still alive at the bottom of the waterfall. Happens once a month, whatever. This is obviously going to be a recurring issue here. This requires ropes. This requires patient, patient packaging. This requires litter transport. This requires access. So they go out, we go out, and we pre-plan a place. 
We figure out where do we set up incident command? Where do we set up staging? Where do all the searchers park? How do we get everyone to the search areas? How are communications going to be? Do we have mountains and basins that are going to block our radio communications? Do we need to set up a repeater or a person to act as a go-between at the top of a bluff? We need to set, I mean, gosh, Franklin County, they've set anchors. They've set preset anchors on some of these waterfalls that they go to all the time. And they've cut trails with chainsaws to access those patients by the their um their ohv vehicle like almost all good search and rescue teams now have some kind of a mule or a side-by-side type of vehicle that you can get a stretcher on you can get a litter onto and you got to access the location y'all all of these things think about how long it's going to take to get to the first patient that ever happens to it takes a long time. But if you have a high volume area where lots of rescues happen, you go out and you pre-plan it. You cut your trails. You set anchors. You train everyone. You go and do mock rescues there. You take your dummy, whatever you chose to name it, your particular rescue dummy, and you toss them down the bluff. And then you tell everyone, strap it on, put on your harnesses and go get that guy and do it right. They mock train. Like, That's pre-planning. Those are things we do in search and rescue to try to keep everybody safe and get to people in the the quickest and most efficient manner that we can and trying to overcome those obstacles that you would normally expect on any given place you go. You can remove a lot of those obstacles if you have a place that you already know there's going to be a lot of rescues here. There's going to be a lot of things that we're going to be doing here. That's pre-planning. You write it all down on a sheet of paper. We've got these cool documents. You go in and you fill them out and you make sure every list, every part of the list is covered and you build your plan and do whatever work is necessary to prepare that place for the next time you have to rescue some. That's a pre-plan. That's something search and rescue does. Um, We do a lot of really cool stuff with the lost person behavior that I mentioned earlier. And a lot of it's built around the last known position and the point last seen. Those are two different things, but they're kind of the same thing in a way. LKP is the last known position. That could be a gum wrapper that is a Wrigley gum wrapper, and we know this hiker chews Wrigley gum. It could be a cigarette, a a camel cigarette butt, and we know that the hunter we're looking for chain smokes camels. It could be a St. Louis Cardinals baseball cap that the kid was wearing that we know for a fact was his. It's got his name written in the bin. That's a last known position. We know they were here sometime recently. And the LKP can be updated. You find the kid's hat. Well, you might find his sock another mile up the trail. That becomes the last known position. Point last seen is always the last place somebody saw the person. And that never changes unless... Someone with new information comes forward and said, actually, I saw them three hours later, four miles up the trail. Then you get a new point last seen. But every time you have an LKP or a PLS update, your search area shifts and then everything is rebuilt around that. The percentages, the numbers, the and the time has changed. How many hours has it been since they're missing? That's taken into account because the average human can work, walk to, you know, like a hunter's going to walk, a hiker's going to walk faster than a hunter. A hunter's going to walk faster than a dementia patient. A dementia patient is going to walk in more of a meandering path. And like they, they're all of these things are stuff we take into account when we're building our search plan every time we go out. And those are things we study ahead of time to try to be prepared for. Um, we ground pound with a plan. That's the way to put it. The old way was ground pounding, put everyone out there and send them out. Nowadays, 
a very um, simple way to put it is we ground pound, but we do it with a plan and we do it with information. And that is far more effective and effectual at retrieving the people that we are looking for. There are a lot of other things that are going on search and rescue, technical ropes, like that goes back to the waterfalls. Like you learn to repel, you learn to do patient packaging in a litter, you learn how to extract that package, you learn all of that's a part of what we do. That takes a lot of training. That's a lot of knots. There's geometry involved. It's a little bit of engineering. You're you're working with simple machines like pulleys and leverage. You're working with angles and weight limits and and like the weight limit the maximum elasticity of the rope particular rope you're working with and trying to figure out how much does the package coming up weigh. we've got a first responder down there who weighs 205 pounds he's got 10 pounds worth of gear on the litter weighs 20 pounds or 5 pounds or 50 depending on how antiquated it is and how badly it needs to be updated the patient weighs 185 pounds all of these things have to be taken into account that requires a lot of training that's part of what we do in search and rescue swift water is a good one for all you kayakers out there and canoers swift water that's where it's at you want to talk about learn how to read a river you want to talk about learn how to read rapids and undercurrents and cross currents and hydraulics and and keepers swift water training that's a part of search and rescue um and these days we're getting a lot more technologically advanced and there's a whole lot of fun stuff going on on the technical side drones you got a really good drone and you got a drone license that that's becoming a part of many 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 search and rescue teams something else to note about most search and rescue teams most of us are volunteer there are very few professional search and rescue teams in the united states and even worldwide really because there are very few places that require people to be on the clock at all times prepared for a rescue Rocky Mountains, some places in Alaska, um, th- places like that. High volumes of tourists or high volumes of outdoors men and women. And there's going to be issues because it's an avalanche area or it's whatever. There are certain places that there are dedicated, paid professional search and rescue teams. But the vast majority of us are volunteers. It is similar in a way to a volunteer fire department, which pretty much every American citizen is well aware of and probably has a brother or an uncle or an aunt or whoever on that search and rescue or that fire department. We respond when we're not at work, when we're available. We spend our own time, our own money on this training um, and the searches that we go on. And what's most important to note about this is because we're volunteer, don't think that we're not professionals. Don't think that we are not highly, highly trained individuals, regimented, routined, and capable of doing what we're trained to do. We are trained, for example, to know our limits. If I'm not capable of going over that cliff on that rope, I better not, or I'm going to be in a lot of trouble. In my opinion, and all the different things I've done in my life and seen people cut corners, this is one place I've never seen anyone cut corners in any training from any group with any search team that I've ever had anything to do with. I've never seen anyone cut a single corner. Everybody is very serious about what they do because they know not only is your loved one's life on the line, guess what? Ours is too. When you're going over an edge, 80 foot drop, you're on rope, your life's on the line. 
And there's a lot of people that could affect that. The people up at the top working the edge, the people who checked the rope before it was put up last time for any abrasions that could weaken the rope. Our lives depend on each other as well as your loved one's life. We take it very seriously and we are highly trained individuals at what we do. And the people who aren't highly trained yet, the newbies, the people that come in, we get them trained and we know where and how to use them and what they're capable of doing. Like, it's something that I just want to point out. We are volunteers. It's out of our pocket and it's out of our time budget and it's out of our heart because we love it and we care for it. Like that's something else you need to know. There is no glory in search and rescue. I don't care what movie you ever watched anywhere. There's no glory in search and rescue. What there is in search and rescue are ticks, chiggers, briars, snakes, wasp, bees, hornets, um, Lots of sweat, lots of loss of electrolytes, um, lots of dirt, lots of falls, lots of bruises, lots of bumps, occasionally a break, lots of lacerations. Search and rescue is a thankless job, and most of us that are in search and rescue love it that way. Like, you know, American football. Not everyone's into that, but in American football, and if you live somewhere else in the world, you may have an equivalent that you can understand in, you know, football or rugby or lacrosse or what the heck ever. But in American football, everyone talks about the big uglies, literally the linemen. Nobody ever appreciates them. Nobody notices what they do. They don't score the touchdowns. They aren't flashy. That's always the running backs and the quarterbacks and the wide receivers, if they're really good wide receivers anyway. But the game doesn't happen. None of those points get scored, period, without the linemen. You have to have the big uglies that push things around that move the weight and get the job done and they never get any credit for it. They just do their job. That's very similar to being the search and rescue guy. When you climb out the top and you've littered someone the heck out of this, and we'll talk about that. And this is definitely going to be two episodes. We'll talk about that in the next episode. When you litter somebody out for four hours and you're dying at the end, guess what? As soon as you get to any kind of a road, a path, anything, that patient gets passed off onto a waiting mule, OHV vehicle, which is then taken to a waiting ambulance. And do you know where the, the TV cameras are? They're always at the waiting ambulance. So the people who just kind of like drove the mule down and drove it back, they're the ones that get on TV, not the people that actually went in, did the work, got the ticks, got the chiggers, got the sweat, got the lacerations. There is no glory in search and rescue. And we like it that way. And you know why we like it that way? Because it weeds out the pretenders. It weeds out the posers. There have been, I've seen in just my little five years, in our little team right here in Sebastian County, we got a lot of people come in and that's what's on their mind is the glory. Like, but they don't stay long because they found out, find out pretty fast. This is a lot of hard work. There's a lot of dedication. And like, there's literally nothing in this for me. That's not a good attitude to have. And that's why we like it this way is because they weed themselves out, period. They take themselves right out the door because there's nothing in it for them. Who we want in here, who we want in search and rescue are people that do all that nasty stuff. And that is like the glory we get. That is our thanks. We're a different kind of people. I come home after a long search and we've had one last year that we're going to talk about in episode two. And it's like the greatest thing ever. I can't wait to talk about it. You come home after a search, you are dead. You're exhausted. You're tired. It's three in the morning. And guess what? You got to be at work at six. You haven't eaten, 
because you went out at two o'clock in the afternoon. You haven't had anything. You don't feel good at all. But you know what? You feel freaking amazing because you went out and you made a difference. You did something good. You gave everything you had to do the right thing and try to help somebody out in need. And that is the reward. That's what we love about it. And anyone that doesn't feel that way about it, they disappear quite quickly because if they're in it because they hope to get their face on the news or if they're in it because they want people to respect them, they find out real fast that nobody cares about the search and rescue guys. It's something else you should know. But if you know any search and rescue peeps in your family, in your community, you should absolutely tell them thank you, you know, every once in a while, because if they get out and they go, they work hard. And when we do hear that we made a difference for somebody, it it makes all the difference in the world. We're going to talk about a story like that in episode two as well. We're going to move on to what to do if you get lost. But first, let's hear a word from our sponsors and we'll come right back to that. I want to take a second to tell you guys about tonight's sponsor, Survival Feeling. Survival Feeling is a hiking brand based in Greece, and they offer an assortment of gear that's aimed towards the goal of helping you better enjoy your time outside. And that is, of course, what we are all about here at Wayward Stories. I really like this company for a lot of reasons, but chief amongst them is that they were founded with giving back to the community in mind. They donate a portion of all proceeds to organizations like the Wildland Firefighters Foundation to help support those who work to keep us all safe while we're out there trying to find ourselves. We've partnered with them to bring you guys a unique coupon code that will save you wayward souls 15% off of your order. Go to survivalfeeling.com and use offer code waywardstories at checkout. I think you guys will like what they have to offer and what they're all about just as much as I do. Once again, that's survivalfeeling.com and use the offer code waywardstories. We're going to talk about next on the list. We're going to try to start rolling on this. We're at 40 minutes. Dang. That's awesome though. I love episodes like this that are flowing. I'm with it. I'm with it. I hope you guys are too. Um, what should you do if you're lost? I actually did a video on this for our search and rescue team about two years ago. Now you can go onto my YouTube channel, wayward stories or uh, youtube.com forward slash wayward stories. And you can find it way back down the list. Um, but I'm probably going to do it a lot better here because I'm a lot more comfortable in front of this camera than I was two years ago. What should you do if you're lost? The moment that you realize that you are lost, like you stopped and you said, wait a second, something doesn't look right. This doesn't feel right. I'm not sure where I'm at. You maybe walk a little farther, you turn around, you look behind you, you look to the side, you start looking for points of reference. Where's a mountain peak that I know should be there? Where's whatever? And you can't find it. That moment that you know you're lost, stop moving. The number one thing that you can do is stop moving at that moment. Because if you keep moving while you're lost, we go back to the whack-a-mole reference. It is hard to hit a moving target. If you are outdoorsman of any kind, you should have some kind of a little backpack with you. Even if, if you're a hunter to a hiker, you should have some kind of a day pack and you should have some basic provisions in that pack where you can set up a little spot, a little camp even where you can just wait, just hunker down, batten down the hatches and prepare yourself to be found because it'll happen eventually. But stop moving. If you keep moving, the more disoriented you get, the more disoriented you get, the further you'll wander off track, you'll end up walking in circles. It was noted by U.S. Border Patrol agents back in the day. They, they're they the guys that came, they're the ones that 
really, really refined man tracking in so many ways. They found that people walking on a straight line trying to go dead north, whenever they have to walk around something, whether it's a rock or a cactus or a tree or whatever, they tend to deviate to the side that they are handed. If they're left-handed, they'll go to the left side of it. If they're right-handed, they'll go to the right. And once you go around that, you never get back on the straight course you were. So for every obstacle you hit, you just start going in circles. There's a there's a story in one of those books about a situation exactly like that where a group of people um, that were crossing into America in an illegal crossing type of situation literally walked in a huge circle and most of them died because they couldn't stay on a straight line because they literally were leaning. They're all right. Most people are right handed. Right. And they were going in the giant right turn. Um, so stop moving. Make it easier for us to find you. A lot of what you should do when you're lost happens before you get lost. That's called like pre-prep. And what you need is you just need a backpack, which you should have as a hiker because you need somewhere to put your like granola bar, right? And a couple of bottles of water or even your um, camelback. In that pack, you just need to keep a couple of little things like a space blanket or a bivy sack. I prefer a bivy sack. They're a lot more efficient. You can get them in bright orange. Get you like a bright orange bivy sack or a space blanket. Make sure you have a survival whistle. Make sure you have a life straw. Make sure you have at least, honestly, I'd say two ways to start fire because it's so light. It can be waterproof matches and a Bic lighter. It can be a Bic lighter and a striker. I don't care, but they're so light and they're so small. Have that with you. Um, a little bit of tinder, something that can really get it started. There's a lot of great options on the market out there now for fire starters that you can light with a spark. It'll burn for 30, 40 seconds, a minute, and really get your kindling going, whatever. Just a few little things. A way to have water, a way to make heat, a way to get protection, and a way to signal. Those are the main, main things that you can do. Um, and when I say signal, we call those attraction techniques. You want to be able to blow a whistle. And a whistle's better than your voice. A whistle cuts far further into the distance than your voice ever can. And if you've ever yelled for an extended period of time, think of a freaking high school football game where your team was playing in the playoffs or for state um, or anything that you've ever yelled for an extended period of time in just the two hours that game takes to be played. You are hoarse and nothing will come out of your throat by the end of it. And it hurts. Take that to heart. A whistle you could blow all damn night and all damn day and all damn night again, and all damn day again. And that's what you need to be doing if you're lost. If you get a survival whistle, every, I mean, hell, with a whistle, you're expending so little energy for it, you could blow it every 10 minutes. Like, you could blow out SOS. Everyone knows SOS. But have a whistle, and you sound it on a schedule every 10 minutes, every 15, every half hour, whatever you want to do. The more often, the better. Honestly, it gives people a chance to come and find you. It gives people, because what we need is you might not even be able to hear our voice. We could be four miles away and hear that whistle. There's no way you're going to hear our voice calling to you. But if you're hitting that whistle every 10 minutes, we can keep moving in the right direction consistently. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? And also like with the survival blanket thing, you need to keep warm. And if you get a bright orange one, guys, you find a spot where you can lay it out in an open field next to where you've set up your camp. Maybe you can turn it into a giant orange X because if you're missing long enough, we're going to have civil air patrol out there. We're going to have, I mean, heck, sometimes the air evac people, if they don't have a patient transport going on, we can request a bird from an air evac and they can come out and do some scans of the area. Like we're going to be looking at for you from the air too. It's a very big 
big possibility. So you want to increase your footprint. You want to put something out that can be seen. You want to be able to make noise for as long as you can make noise and you want to stay where you are. So a little bit of this is just preventative maintenance. Well, I mean, the biggest thing is preventative and to go along with preventative maintenance, something that's super, super, super important is leave a trip plan. Guys do this every time, no matter what you're going to do, leave it with mom or dad or grandpa or grandma or your sister, or your best friend, or the guy that knows if you show up tomorrow at work and you're not there, let him know. If I'm not here tomorrow, tell people I'm missing because I went hiking on the OHT from in stage B from this trailhead. Or I went out on the river to do a solo two-nighter and I started at this river access. Like leave a trick trip plan with an expected time of return and work out of like, hey, I expect to be back at six, but you know what? It could honestly be as late as eight or nine. But if I'm not back by nine o'clock, ten o'clock, my bedtime before I got to go to work tomorrow, Sunday, whatever, something's wrong. Send the dogs. So like leave a trip plan. That's honestly, that's it in a nutshell. Leave a trip plan, have some things in your pack. No matter what, guys, they don't weigh much. I don't care what kind of a hiker you are. They don't weigh enough for you to leave it out of your pack. Away for water, away for fire, away for shelter, and away to attract attention. Get those things in your pack. It's cheap. They're light. They're small. They're no big deal. Take care of that stuff. Get it in your pack and then stay put. And when I say don't move, once you realize you're lost, do that with respect to the environs that you're in. If you are like in a river bottom and you know that it's supposed to rain somewhere in the area, if you're like me, a weather spotter, I'm interested in weather. I can know that it's going to rain up in the Arkansas River Basin in the next three days and it's not going to affect me at all. But if I find myself down on the low-lying creeks feeding into the Arkansas River, I'm not going to set up a camp because guess what? In the next three days, that rain could work its way downstream to me. Be weather aware of what's going on in the world and camp yourself, park yourself accordingly to that. Um, don't get don't get yourself in a worse situation. So move up the hill. I mean, preferably move up the hill from a low lying area from the water and see if there's like a clearing or a field somewhere or a clear cut nearby where you can set up some kind of a marker. You could build a signal fire if it's safe. Don't start a wildfire because you want to talk about have problems. I'm lost and now I'm surrounded by a wildland fire. Like, don't make your situation any worse. You know, like one of our sayings in search and rescue, and it really goes along, it's hand in hand with that know your limits, know what you're not capable of, and don't go be a hero because you can make matters worse. It's the same kind of an idea. And the concept is be a part of the solution, don't be a part of the problem. Don't make things worse. Be wise about what you're doing, but do whatever you can to help yourself get discovered. Make, you know, the big X in the field or whatever it is. Be smart about where you choose to stay put. Pick a good place to stay put with access to water, but not down in the basin where the water fills up. And start trying to get found by making noise and by building visual attractants if that's something that's available to you. That's the best things that you can do if you ever find out that you're lost. So now let's talk about the benefits of being a part of a search and rescue team. And we will end tonight's episode after this section and then we'll get to work on episode two because this is going to kind of play perfectly into part two. Um, there are many benefits to joining. If you're listening to this show, I have no doubt that you're an outdoorsman or woman. You have no, like, there's really no one else is going to listen to this because we ain't talking about anything other than that. 
you are probably a kayaker, a hiker, a mountain biker, a rock climber, somebody who's into rappelling, somebody who's into spelunking and caving, somebody who's into bird watching or nature photography or any of those kinds of things. That's probably who you're going to be. Joining a search and rescue team is beneficial to everyone. And here's why. Number one, you give back to the community. That is the number one benefit to all of it. You probably already have a whole lot of different kinds of training. Like if you're a rock guy or you're a rappelling guy, you already know a ton of the knots and a ton of the um, connections and a ton of the things about weight and distribution and angles that you have to know to be a technical rope rescue guy. Like you could come in and that could be your specialty. And guess what? When you come in and you join and you become a part of the technical ropes team on your local search and rescue team, you're going to get access to training that's probably going to be paid for by the county or somebody else. And you become a better, safer, more capable mountaineer. If you are a kayaker and you love whitewater, guess what? You're a swiftwater guy. You've already, you already know a lot of it. You already know how to read keepers. You already know how to read strainers. You already know how to self-rescue. You may have whitewater training classes for being in a kayak already in the books. It's a lot like the same. It's kind of essentially the same kind of training as you're going to get in a swift water class, except you learn how to save other people. If you're a kayaker, you're already a swift water guy, like a whitewater kayaker, not like the everyday guy that goes and drinks a 12 pack on the weekend and, and fishes a little bit that no, you're not. But if you're a whitewater guy that studies whitewater kayaking, you're already mostly trained to be a swift water person. You just need to go get the rest of the technical stuff you need to know. And someone's going to hand you a certificate and you can go save someone's life. Next time you're on the river, you will be more capable of helping people that find themselves in distress. Y'all, there's a lot of ugly stories out there about kayakers in a group. And one of the kayakers ended up in a keeper and no one could save them. But, you know, that might have turned out different in some of those scenarios if somebody was a search and rescue person or had the training and had that throwback and had the knowledge they needed to affect that rescue. That's possibility. So if you're into whitewater, you're already a swift water guy. Gosh, what else do we have? We got technical ropes. We got swift water ground pounding. Are you a freaking overland hiker? Are you a through hiker? You already got land nav out the nose. Guys, you're a ground pounder. And you'll probably be in planning and operations, just like I ended up in, because you already understand, for example, the high points on a trail. What are you looking for when you're hiking? Where are people likely going to go? You're probably already a ops and planning guy. Like, you're already a ground pound guy. Like, there are so many benefits for everyone. Medical training. Every single one of you outdoorsmen can benefit from the medical training you will receive and have access to. The Example. Two weeks from now, I'm not going to be able to go because of conflicting schedule stuff. Like I said earlier, my list of certs is way shorter. It sounds long, but it's way shorter than it could be if I actually didn't have a job and didn't have anything to do but this. But I'm going to miss out on having Wilderness First Aid paid for on a two-day, 16-hour class course next week at the ARSARA conference, Arkansas Search and Rescue Association conference. Why? Because I just can't make it work. I just can't make it work, but we have people that are. Like medical training, guys, this will serve you in all aspects of life. It's super important for being outdoors and we're going to touch on it. But like, guys, you can Heimlich somebody that's choking. Like I have an uncle who literally would have died a dozen years ago or longer, maybe 20 years ago now. God, I'm getting old. But a man in the restaurant where he choked on a piece of steak performed the Heimlich maneuver on him and saved his life. Like it happened in my family. 
I have a direct knowledge of and relationship to someone who was saved by the Heimlich maneuver. You'll learn how to do the Heimlich when you do CPR AED. You'll learn what to do with a drowning victim when you take CPR AED. You will know what to do if someone goes unconscious and you can't get a pulse in any situation. We had one locally recently where one of our search and rescue leaders, not team lead, but a leader, I guess he's probably second in command, and he's also our assistant county emergency manager. I don't know the story if he was just already almost on scene or he was so close to it and they called him or what, but a construction worker drove a piece of equipment into a high voltage line and it shocked him and threw him off of that equipment 15 feet to the ground. And our assistant emergency manager and one of the other workers there traded off and did CPR until emergency services arrived and they saved his life. They administered life-saving CPR in an everyday event. Guys, these are things you're going to get with search and rescue, head to toe checks. You can come up on a car accident, a motorcycle accident, a OHV rollover, um, somebody that fell off of a waterfall and you don't have people, you know, it's going to take a while for search and rescue to get there because we've got to get word even to them. There's no cell phone service here. Someone's got to go down the mountain, find a phone, call them. They have to get people here from wherever they are up the mountain. I mean, it's going to take a minute, but if you're there and you have stopped the bleed training, Guess what? That femur that's sticking out of their leg and the arterial bleed that they've got going, you can stop that arterial bleed and save their leg. These are things that are available to you. All of these things will become available to you. You will get training that will help you to go out and give back to the community, but it also doesn't just have to be on a call out. It can be anytime you're on the river, anytime you're on the trail, anytime you're on the face, anytime you're at the beach. It doesn't matter where you go and what you do. All of this training is beneficial to you. It's beneficial to the community and it's beneficial to all of us as a whole, as a bunch of outdoors, wayward souls and all of our brothers and sisters out there looking for themselves We're doing each other a favor when we are as trained as we can possibly be in all the things that are out there to do. It is a win, 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 win. There is no lose in joining a search and rescue team. Your local search and rescue team needs y'all. Like I said, it's like a volunteer fire department. Guess who's not available anytime a call goes out? About 80% of the team because they're at work and call outs always happen at noon on Thursday or whatever. Like, they need as many people as possible so that you have a bigger pool to pull from to send out on a call when something goes down. So get out there, get active, and get involved with your local search and rescue team. Um, I think that's going to wrap up this week's episode, part one of the search and rescue episode that I've been talking about for so long. And I think we'll wrap it there because I've hit all my high points. And to go any further would be going into the stories about search and rescue that I want to tell you about in next week's episode because we've already pushed an hour. So we're going to wrap it up for tonight. I want to thank each and every one of you who've stopped in to listen or watch here on YouTube. Um, please rate, review, and subscribe like Ty Wiesa did this week, which helped us out so much. We sincerely appreciate that. If you want to submit your stories, if you've got any great stories of being out there, mywaywardstory at gmail.com, shoot it this way. Check out our website for everything else. Patreon, if you want to support us. Um, Gosh, what else do we have there? Instagram, Facebook, private pages like my personal Facebook page. Anything you want to check out, get over there and do that. You guys, I want you to think real hard and consider very seriously being a part of Search and Rescue. 
and come back next week for the next episode where I'm going to tell you some stories of some things that have happened out there in the bush. And if they don't make you want to be in search and rescue, you may not have a pulse. Get out there, do something good in the world until I see you again next week. Be rocky. The mountaintop awakes. Carry on.